I'm your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potster Podcasts, Potster Scoops. Welcome to Potster Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. Before we get into today's episode, a couple of changes are being made to Potster Podcast that I want to share with you, and I truly hope you'll be on board with them. First of all, the podcast release date is officially moving to every other Thursday starting today. The release date has been every other Tuesday for the past couple of years, which seemed to work well for a while, but somewhat recently, my commitments outside of the podcast have shifted a bit, and that has made it increasingly difficult to keep a Tuesday release date. As many of you know, this is a hobby and a passion for me, and I want to do what I can to keep this going. Secondly, Today is the premiere for a new format I will use for some episodes going forward. It's called Potster Scoops. In these episodes, I will take a news story, a video, a blog piece, or something else along those same lines, something I recently heard about, and I'll provide my commentary on it. It may be one story, perhaps a couple, it depends. Now, a lot of you do follow me on Twitter. If you don't, feel free to give me a follow at PotsterCast. And fairly often, I tend to go there or some longer form social media outlet like Reddit and give my off-the-cuff thoughts on a particular issue or story. Think of Potster Scoops as my Twitter feed, except in podcast form. The normal, longer Potster Podcast episodes you know and love will still be released, but Scoops will be interspersed with the more typical episodes. There are times where some story might hit the news, or I come across something, like commentary from a pundit or influencer, or there's a topic of discussion that's trending on social media, and I have a lot of thoughts on it. The thing is, to produce a typical episode takes a lot of time. A typical episode involves a great deal of research before I even hit record. By far, most of the time in creating each episode goes into research. At this time, I'm a one-woman shop, and I always have been, so research and post-production are all me, as well as, of course, the recording. As the podcast has continued, the time invested in research has only increased. Potster Scoops will allow me to give my take on current, trending topics in real time, or close to it, and it'll lean more into commentary than typical episodes. Check this out, and as I continue to release Potster Scoops episodes alongside normally formatted episodes, let me know what you think about the format. The best way to do this is Twitter, but I'm also on Facebook and Instagram, both at Potster Podcast, one word. In the first episode of Potster Scoops, I want to talk about a story that made the news here in Ohio, but touches on issues that are not unique to the state. Like a lot of Rust Belt states, Ohio has been struggling with an opioid epidemic for the past several years. I discuss it in more detail in the Drug War series, but it's really an outgrowth of the overprescribing of pain medication 
that occurred in the 1990s and early 2000s, especially in suburban and rural areas. What's made the opioid epidemic even more deadly in recent years is that some drug dealers are lacing their wares with fentanyl. Fentanyl is an opioid, in other words, a synthetic opiate. It has legitimate medical uses, such as pain management for cancer and other intensely painful chronic health issues. But fentanyl is also used on the black market to boost the highs of other illicit drugs, such as heroin and cocaine. The thing is, fentanyl is quite dangerous. It's the drug responsible for the deaths of musical artists Prince and Tom Petty. Fentanyl is 50 times more powerful than heroin and up to 100 times more powerful than morphine. So drugs laced with this opioid leave users much more susceptible to overdose and by extension, death. Over the past few years, there has been a notable increase in deaths from opioid overdose here in Ohio. And a lot of it is due to drug users not knowing that what they're taking is laced with fentanyl. They're taking what they think is the right amount of their drug of choice, whether it be heroin, coke, meth, molly, or black market prescription pills. But because of this extremely potent drug that's also present that they don't know is there, it can kill them. Fentanyl-related overdoses are on the rise. In 2019, the most recent year where complete statistics are available, 76% of overdose deaths in Ohio involved fentanyl. So this and similar statistics in other states have led the government at all levels to tell the public that they're fighting the opioid epidemic. When you compare that to the crack epidemic of the 1980s, the government demonized the users as degenerates and took the black community down the road to mass incarceration, while on the other hand, facilitating the funneling of cocaine into the inner cities from suppliers in Latin America. In the opioid epidemic of recent years, the users have been by and large viewed as victims, those who have an illness, who have fallen into the trap of addiction. While a growing number of users are people of color, those we think of when discussing opioid addiction have been, by and large, suburban and rural white Americans. Countless small towns and bedroom communities have been featured in news stories about the ravages of opioid addiction. And a lot of Americans who see themselves in these featured stories, whether from rural communities, suburbia, or even cities, tend to view law enforcement agencies, the police, as a valuable ally in ending the epidemic. But what if they're not? On September 29th, the U.S. Department of Justice announced the arrest of two Columbus, Ohio police officers on federal charges of drug trafficking. 44-year-old Marco L. Marino and 33-year-old John J. Kochkowski, both detectives in the narcotics unit for the Columbus Division of Police, are accused of distributing about 7.5 kilos of fentanyl, enough to kill just about every man, woman, and child in Los Angeles, or enough to take out the entire city of Columbus four times over. Marino is also alleged to have accepted bribes that totaled up to $44,000 in order to facilitate the safe transport of 27 kilos of cocaine. 
The accused traffickers are facing 10 years to life in prison on the charges related to fentanyl distribution, while Marino is also facing an additional 10 years for the alleged bribery. If you've listened to Potstir podcast for a long time, you probably know that I'm opposed to the drug war. It criminalizes addiction. It bolsters a black market for drugs that have been labeled illicit and therefore leads to increased danger for users and, by extension, the community. The drug war also leads to an increased crime rate, and drug charges are what bolsters private prisons, which, in my opinion, should not exist. I support a well-regulated drug market in all 50 states with drugs decriminalized on the federal level, which I think, much like is the case with alcohol, would dramatically cut down on the black market and would be safer for everyone. I also support universally available detox and rehabilitation, as well as comprehensive mental health services, alongside a nationalized health care system. This way, drug users who are in the throes of dependency have the option to get sober, clean, and well, regardless of themselves or their family's ability to pay. Also, as I described in detail over the course of the America's Drug War series released by Potstir Podcast a couple of years ago, if you haven't done so already, check those out. The century-long drug war is shown to have racial motivations. Over the long history of America's war on drugs, white supremacy has tracked alongside and has even been the stated motivation by drug warriors of the past, including the first drug czar, Harry Anslinger, and President Richard Nixon. And racial bias has been apparent from the way various drugs have been classed and therefore how possession and tracking of each is handled to the funneling of certain drugs into particular communities. The negative effects of the drug war are readily apparent. Users finding themselves without universally accessible resources to get themselves clean in a way to be accepted fully back into the community mass incarceration, the destruction of neighborhoods, cities, and towns. And while those effects are not evenly distributed racially or economically, people of color and the poor are often affected most harshly. White Americans and the more well-off in society are not immune. For example, the opioid epidemic is an unintended consequence of racial bias in the medical field. When prescription opioids were made readily available in the 1990s, doctors were more likely to prescribe prescription opioid medication to white patients than to patients of color. The disparity is less apparent now due to the opioid epidemic, but it still exists. There have been two reasons for this disparity. First of all, there has been a widespread racist belief that black patients are less sensitive to pain. This is a deeply embedded racist trope that goes back generations. Doctors are less likely to believe the severity of pain complaints from black patients, and therefore these patients are more likely to be prescribed non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs, such as ibuprofen or naproxen. NSAIDs are less powerful than opioids, but also don't carry the risk of dependency. The second reason is that patients of color who complain of pain are more likely to be labeled drug-seeking than white patients. Doctors are more likely to assume that patients of color are addicts 
or are seeking prescriptions to sell on the black market, relying on stereotypes that typical drug users and drug dealers are people of color, when statistically this is not the case. This manifestation of medical racism is bad for people of color because real issues with pain are less likely to be treated appropriately, leading to worse health outcomes, both from the lack of treatment and the resulting distrust of medical officials due to patients' real health issues not being taken seriously. But it's also bad for white people. Opioids were being prescribed without much, if any, regard for risk of dependency. As pharmaceutical companies were making a killing on opioids, they were loath to admit the risk it posed to patients, and there was little in the way of regulations that were designed to hold them accountable. So this created a perfect storm. When tolerance to a drug increases, prescriptions run out, and doctors aren't willing or able to prescribe more. Many patients turn to the black market, whether it's prescription pills or even street drugs such as heroin that are similar to prescription opioids, but lower in cost. And this is what eventually led to the opioid epidemic. Fentanyl was first made available to Americans with a prescription in 1968 as a powerful analgesic, in other words, a pain reliever. But it became a lot more popular in the 1990s during the prescription pain medication heyday, along with other prescription opioids. Later, fentanyl became a popular drug to lease street drugs with due to its potency. A little goes a very, very long way, increasing or altering the highs of other drugs. But as I mentioned earlier, Americans have also died due to fentanyl, both knowingly taking the drug but inadvertently overdosing, or by taking other drugs and being unaware of the presence of fentanyl in them. And then here's the other aspect of the story I think it's important to talk about. It's easy to point out the fact that these two officers have been arrested by the feds and are facing real time. And say, well, the system works. These two bad apples are facing accountability. This is what you want, right? If only it were so simple. According to the Columbus Dispatch, both Marco Marino and John Kaczkowski joined the Columbus Division of Police after graduating from the police academy in late 2010. Marino had a disciplinary record for moving violations, but nothing was reported involving people prior to these alleged revelations. As for Kaczkowski, his personnel file includes an off-duty incident in 2015, where he kicked an unconscious man while he lay on the ground. His victim had a concussion and needed stitches, while Kaczkowski pled guilty to a reduced charge of disorderly conduct, a misdemeanor. While he was also punished internally, he was not fired and he still remained on the police force as part of the capital's finest. Marino and Kaczkowski are among at least a dozen Columbus police officers who have faced criminal charges since 2019, including five facing federal charges. These are in unrelated separate incidents. We're talking about officers being charged with misconduct related to the George Floyd protests, wire fraud, murder, sexual assault, and charges related to filming a child nude. Though, oddly enough, this officer is not being charged with possession or production of CP. 
And these are officers who have been charged. Now, full disclosure, while not a fan of police in general, I'm really not a fan of Columbus police. When I went to The Ohio State University 20 years ago, the city police would go all out in a show of force to over-police the university area during the yearly African American Heritage Festival. The festival was a wonderful demonstration of black community and culture, and it drew participants from both inside and outside the university. But due to the large influx of mostly black people to the university area, the Columbus police would lock down the university area and harass patrons under the assumption that the crowds of black people simply existing were an inherent risk. I'm sure the university itself consented to this, and unfortunately, the overwhelming police presence was a factor in the festival's eventual demise. But at the same time, every year I was at the university, from the time I started out as a freshman until the year I graduated, there was always, always a riot off campus during football season, usually in connection with the Ohio State-Michigan football game. And these riots would cause a great deal of property damage. Burning couches and cars turned over in the streets. Where was this show of force each year for the mostly white rioters who were doing real damage? And it's not like the Columbus police magically reformed themselves over the past couple of decades. The police attacked protesters at George Floyd police brutality demonstrations with their less lethal weapons of choice and even arrested a local politician who was involved in the protests. While they pretty much stood back and watched the entitled anti-lockdown protesters crowd the doors to the Ohio State House. So I'm not surprised that the Columbus police have some bad folks in their ranks. We know of 12 publicly. Who else is in there violating the civil rights of Columbus residents and committing crimes of all sorts that we don't know about. On one hand, the spate of charges may indicate that some accountability is on the way for the police state. But on the other hand, it remains to be seen what will come of this case or some of the others involving the police. A few have been resolved, and the ones resolved have resulted in misdemeanor charges. But it looks like some of the more substantive cases, such as the murder, the CP, and the sexual assault charges, as well as this drug case, are still ongoing. This also indicates a problematic culture within the police department, and I'm sure Columbus is not alone in that regard. I've discussed other police departments in various other episodes over the years, and to be completely honest, I'm tired of people claiming that these types of cases are exceptions. Whether it's Minneapolis police, Dallas Police, the NYPD, Detroit Police, Cleveland Police, Baltimore Police, Cincy PD, Columbus Division of Police. The lack of accountability is everywhere. And yes, those are cities, but small town police departments and sheriff's offices also face corruption. It's just that Mayberry is too small for people to remember on those rare occasions they make the news. Again, if this is what we know, what is it we don't know? Police serve a purpose, but not the purpose that's repeated ad nauseum on the news or on cop shows or in social media. Their job isn't really to protect and serve, but to provide an illusion of safety and security for a privileged segment of Americans. 
Their track record of actually providing safety and security is inconsistent at best. In their current form, the police cannot be trusted to protect us from the bad guys, especially when they are the bad guys. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Potster Podcasts, Potster Scoops. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Prime, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to potsterpodcast.com slash download, and you'll see the links. Subscribing gets you new episodes once they come out, so you don't have to wait. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give it five stars on your podcatcher of choice and leave a review. And yes, I'm always on Twitter with more takes like this. So follow me there at PotsterCast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. Freedom is not free.